They say that a duck's quack doesn't echo, that ostriches stick their head in the sand, that lemmings throw themselves off cliffs, and that Galnet forum readers are capable of being sensible and not at all salty. Here at Hutton this evening, we can prove that one of these is categorically untrue. Throughout the radio level on the station, high up on one of the long arms that lead away from the main mug production facilities, a very special Hutton team member is following a duck. The duck is wandering this way and that, far from where it should be, and in zero G, a nervous duck is something that you don't want overhead. Its feet occasionally flap against a surface and it jets off in a different direction, using its wings for stability. The member of the team following our avian friend sees it enter the radio studio and with a look of panic, presents himself to the team waiting within. Duck prevention officer here reporting for duty. Now, where is the little blighter? He's over there, behind the desk. What are you doing? This is a little trick that I learned back on Earth. If you put all those little ducklings in a box, the mother is going to follow you. Oh, why have you got an egg box under one arm? I couldn't find any ducklings. These are going to have to do. She doesn't look very impressed. You do know we're about to go in there, don't you? Hey, ducky, ducky, ducky. Come on, come on, this way. I say, it's me. Oh, bother. It's got into the equipment. We'll never get it out on time. <laughs> make so much. Stop the ducks. <laughs> <laughs> good evening, good evening everyone. I am Dick Chafing, sitting astride the stro show like a like a god, like a boss. I'm a little concerned about the duck, especially if Alvin sees it, though. If Moof gets his way, we'll be ordering some hoisin sauce for immediate delivery. Joining me tonight we have Rudolf Hucker, the three-legged wooden horse of news. Sneaking things into my script that should be obvious. But somehow I missed. We have Harry Bolsack, Hutton's very own Achilles Hill. Hmm. And there's Wilma, who keeps us all lashed to the mast. And we've got Norma, the voice that sunk a thousand ships. I'm not sure I like that one. But if we're insulting everyone, Lou's not here. I think he's hiding in the cave or something. I don't know exactly what he's doing, but I do know there's a danger of him putting his eye out. I've got no idea what's going on here, but let's sail forth into the headlines and hope that this show doesn't go on for years. Ah, right. Where's the bong button? Here we go. <clears throat> Licensed legs and landings landing soon. Have the biscuits gone stale? All the latest from Dunker's Rest. Dollar Depot dropped by WNL Distraction. Hutton says, dull. Hogtied Buck says, what the heck? 
We're going to town in Meredith City where the grass is green and the jokes are witty. It's all about PvP at Reedquat. And I'm going to tell us all about the pirate attack in Hill Passai, since I don't have hold of loose bits this week. First tonight, we have our first story. There's been a new buzz about the galaxy. And no, we don't mean the murder hornets of old Earth. We mean the latest announcement by the Pilots Federation that after years of work, it looks like licensed uh, access to the atmospheric planets is on the horizon. They've been researching how to safely allow commanders to move from the rocky and icy worlds that they've been so used to, from the Coriolis and Orbis and outposts where their kind hang out, and begin to reintegrate with the majority of the galactic population planet side. Yes, we've earned our wings and sometime soon we'll be getting our legs and hopefully feet. With atmospheres, alien microbes, poisonous gases and other other hazards, difficult terrain and the need to be uh, actually able to move around rather than bounce like a Pillsbury Doughboy, the first challenge was to design a spacesuit that didn't catch you in the diddly doodahs when crouching. The original space legs were invented the year before the Cobra Mark III was brought to the masses and the story of Commander Jameson hit the airwaves. The story of Jetman and his jetpack on planet surfaces, bravely trying to reassemble his broken rocket, clad in nothing but an inflexible spacesuit. In the intervening years, access to atmospheric bodies has been the sole province of government agencies, wary of spreading bacterial and micro- microbial destruction on local flora and fauna as well as the genuine possibility that pilots might end up as lawn darts all over the place and risk the safety of both indigenous and colonial populations through artistic landings. But with a little bit of diligent hard work and a lot of effort, they've confirmed that members of the Pilots' Federation can bring their elite feet, their sky thighs, their space legs and their preambulation to a planet near you early in 3307. Oh, and yes, they've come up with a jetpack that doesn't barbecue your bum every time it fires, or project you like Bubba Fed into a Java sales barge. <sighs> what the planet-dwelling population think about a bunch of space jockeys arriving on their pristine paradise has remains to be seen, but the initial video feeds have shown heavily armed commanders with support ships approaching unsuspecting planets with dubious intentions etched on their space visors. We're excited, as it may mean that there are more places that are yet to hear about the mug, and Alvin might actually get outdoors for a change, which will certainly save me from picking up those little parcels. Watch this space for more news about stuff that's not in space. Over in WNL, at Dunker's Rest, the campaign to save the biscuit production facilities from the evil Simbad the Bad appears to be a little less fresh than it seemed a week ago. 
with Simbad the Bad bribing all and sundry to bring exploration data to Dunker's Rest, then flogging it all to Universal Cartographics, along with handing over a brown envelope stuffed in stuffed with unmarked bills, moving the influence in the right direction is proving to be less of a ginger snap and more of Auntie's bait goods that will break your teeth than was expected. With the Biscuiteers unable to take advantage of legitimate means such as trade, or bounty hunting, or data drops, they've resorted to taking any missions they can from their local agent, right under the rather pointy nose of Simbad the Bad. His rather sordid media campaign appears to have stopped this week, with his propagandists taking the week off. When it comes to activity, however, Simbad has been up to his old tricks and using every trick in the book to keep the 38 at bay. The Biscuiteers aren't daunted by the scale of this project, though, and are determined to bring Simbad the Bad to a bad end in WNL, just one nibble at a time. More news from Colonia, this time courtesy of King Hanky. It appears that whilst we've been stalking the biscuit barrel, waiting to get our hands on the ginger nuts, someone else has had their eye on a depot at Dola. As is normal for Colonia, Hutton have been in a cycle of election, outbreak, uh, probably from kissing all those grotty snotty babies, and election again. And unfortunately, we got election burnout and forgot to actually campaign in the last one meaning that Dola Depot and Tia changed hands. King Hanky has switched his attention back to Tia, and wiping the tear from his eye, giving us a little frustrated and Simpson-esque dole, has put a number of his clones into action to rescue the Dola from the doldrums. Any pirates in the vicinity of Colonia, if a mission takes you past our front door at Dola, if you could bag a mission or two on your way past, we'd be ever so grateful. Or from Hanky's colon later in the hot pit rundown. We have received an official, unofficial explanation for the recent absence of Buck Naked's spokesperson for Lacon Spaceways. From our airwaves and the redness of his face upon his sudden return last week, it appears that Buck may have been subject to a case of mistaken identity, as one night, whilst dressing in his Type 7, aptly named the Bedhead Redemption, and wearing his standard full cowboy outfit. Well, you like to get undressed at night, don't you? Buck likes a change from his normal attire as well. He awoke to find two figures at his bedside, holding their weapons in their hands, saying, clothes off, it's time for us to use the broom. Buck's immediate and witty retort was, bugger off, it's too early, as he'd initially mistaken them for his usual wake-up call. It soon dawned upon him that these were not his regular Friday assistants, as they were not carrying the jar of necessary unguents, nor a cure for a sake hangover. But never one to turn down a new experience, Buck agreed to the procedure. When the two gentlemen stepped into the light, revealing that they weren't Buck's usual nocturnal visitors and presenting their advance fee for their intimate sweeping, Buck realized that the searchers should have looked at the ship next door the red bed detention. Of course, the hired hands, expecting token resistance as part of, uh, as part of their roleplay, promptly tasered Buck before showing some true grit in hog-tying him and breaking out their best tickling sticks. 
He offered them a fistful of dollars to untie him, which they refused, but for a few dollars more, they let him keep his boots on. At which point, from a location that, as of yet, on a naked buck, the mind boggles as to where it was, he managed to lay his manacled hands on a rather beefing-looking beam laser and offered, any man that doesn't want to cooperate will make him wish he hadn't been born. Before suggesting that they looked at his ID, made in real leather and embossed with the words badass mother trucker, their eyes opened wise, wide as they realized their error. That's the problem with this business, said Buck. All you meet are cowboys and aliens. They are, as of yet, unforgiven. The sight of a buck naked, buck naked, holding his big beam laser in one hand and walking them into the airlock is something that's sure to give them nightmares. There's no word yet as to whether the members of Simbad the Bad that had actually hired them for services managed to get his evening of sordid pleasures with that broom. But our imaginations are running right as to what a 5,000 credit tickling session actually involves. <laughs> you get so used to that taking a wee bit longer on the puzzles, don't you? <laughs> Vertente Super Rotam, as they say over in Shinrata Desra, or a turn of the wheel as Vantian turns over in his wonderful Latin-speaking grave as the Dark Wheel supporters gain a little momentum. They were thrown into a spin by the knowledge that actually put the Dark Wheel on top over at Founder's World was one step too many, but undaunted they realised that the bureaucrats that run the public face of the supposedly secret organisation have an outpost over in LHS 926. Yes, Meredith City, where, as the badly translated cover song state, the grass is green and the joke's quite witty. It is the location of their latest effort to recapture that spirit of adventure that inspired so many keyboard warriors back in the day behind the console of an old iron arse Cobra Mark III. Naming themselves Rabid Hamster Attack Force, we're not sure why that particular name as hamsters appear to be particularly short-lived. But aside from that one incident where Harry got one stuck in his flight suit that time, they aren't particularly dangerous. Their plan to take over the galaxy one station at a time! <laughs> and of course, definitely not anything that belongs to anyone else from any other uh, pilot federation. It just, just, just no one else is affected. <clears throat> Their target. Some say that it's Saul. Others that it's not the destination, but the attention that it garners to the process that's important. <laughs> Meme-meister general for the hamsters, the ever-attentive Alec Turner of the Bucky Ballers, has been in overdrive this week, churning out pictorial and viral media for them and a number of very popular player groups, have expressed an interest in being part of the Dark Wheel Appreciation and Reenactment Society, complete with muskets. Just in case there's something behind it and they really don't want to miss out. We wish them well. And if they actually do end up anywhere near Saul, Alvin asks politely that they leave his playground well alone, or he'll bark at them. Or quack, supposedly. Reed Kratt has seen a battle. <clears throat> I'm going to start the one again. Reed Kratt has seen a battle on an epic scale. 
and Hutton was there to watch. We drew up our deck chairs and popped the corn as we settled down to see how PvP in Reedquack turned out. PvP in this case is Pirate versus Pirate, as Code engaged in a war with Spear in this ancient and long-troubled system. Considering Spear are involved, or is that S-P-E-A-R? I don't know, it might be an acronym. We shouldn't be surprised by the amount of sabre-rattling, and they and Code have supplied enough salt to raise the blood pressure of everyone in the galaxy to dangerous levels. Anarchy is the lifeblood of Reedquat, and spilling blood is the lifestyle. The G-word has been banded about frequently. No, not Gerdler. So much that this might have been termed GVG. Disbelief of the picture-or-it-didn't-happen kind has dominated this conflict, which has been to warfare what descriptions of outing to ancient castles are to common sense. Little has been heard of the truly innocent party in this strife, the harmless Redequatian mouse, which is much prized for its delicate meat and extremely soft fur, used to make the much-treasured mouse mat coats. In this motherfunker of all disputes, the two factions started with handbags at dawn, moved quickly to who had the biggest brother, and what would happen when he turned up, and inevitably escalated to the ultimate in warfare, cries of, yes, I know you are, but what am I? We wish them luck, but don't come crying to us if someone gets hurt. It's been a busy week over in Hutton Space this week. And it's just my luck that Lou's left me holding the can and having to work out what it all means. First things first, thank you Commander Ganesh Taylor, who has returned to Hutton Space from a year and a half of exploration mission. Your big dump means no one else has to visit our stations for a few weeks. The Banter Bus Depot over at Hillpachtai had a minor pirate problem in the last 24 hours, but Kinrain and his Bantabus customers appear to have scared them off in double quick time. Thanks to all the commanders that went over to Barnard Star and braved the dockers to help bring us from out of civil unrest and back into boom. We've had a public holiday over in LP53281 where they're celebrating local hero Svetlana Zavitskaya the first member of a multi-gender space station crew and pioneering Soviet cosmonaut. They've broken out the vodka and a special borscht recipe and are saying Zanashish Milish Dam. There's a little outbreak in Wolf 25, so if you can bring a few bottles of hand sanitizer and some face masks, that would be great. Other than that, over in Hanky's colon, He's asking that we help the Colonia Council over in Tier whilst he comes up with a plan to extricate the blockage before sticking a huge election in there to get our dollar back. That's all from Hutton Space this evening. Say, it's me, Cecil. I'm on the Gnosis, and I'm going to be delivering a lovely box of prizes to some chap called LCU No Fool Like One. Now, Lael tells me that there's no fool like an old fool, and I remember hearing once the very important question, who's more the fool, 
the fool or the fool who follows him. But I'm nobody's fool, and luckily I found this one. Oh, my head hurts. Oh, for goodness sake. Paolo, go and see who it is at the airlock, will you? Hello, who is it? It's Commander Cecil from Hutton Orbital Truckers. He says he has a delivery for you. Tell the delivery boy to leave it in the airlock. I'll pick it up later. He says he needs to give it to you in person. Oh, very well. Congratulations, Commander. I'm here to present you with your prize from the VECM raffle. It's truly magnificent and a gift box containing precious artefacts from the icebreaker Aurora Australis. We have a prestigious gold Hatton mug. Gold, you say? Oh, yes. A gold Hatton mug that has been signed by the crew and another mug also signed. In addition to the mugs, we have some natty little hats that were worn by the crew members and a beautiful pen which has been handcrafted from a part of the ship by one of the crew members. All of this memorabilia has survived the trip to the Antarctica and, of course, being carried here by me. It's all very lovely. Antarctica? Are there perchance any prehistoric specimens unknown to mankind within that box? Uh, no, but I do have a rather spiffy badge. And this ball, it's very squidgy. Perhaps some photographs of Cyclopean architecture and non-Euclidean designs that seem to shift under the human eye. Uh, no, but there are some stickers and a buckyball racing coaster for the mug. Cheers. You mean to tell me that they went all the way to Antarctica and didn't even bother looking for the Mountains of Madness where Professor Lake and the rescue of the Miskatonic University expedition were gruesomely killed by elder things that awoke from the dread city in the early 20th century? Oh, no, I, I don't think so. Utterly useless. Just give me the box and get out of my sight. Um, I suppose you want a tip? No, no, that's fine. Now, if you'd offer me a temple, I'd jump at that. Well, I'll give you one anyway. You should always wear a helmet when standing in the airlock. I say. Oh, bother. Help! Right. Let's have a look at this mug, then. Solid gold, eh? Perhaps we could melt it down, Paolo. How much would you say it's worth? You can get about 10,000 credits per tonne in Epsilon Indy, so probably no more than a few credits. Really? How disappointing. I suppose I could use it as a coffee mug. Give it a good clean, could you? It looks like someone scribbled all over it. Throw the rest of the stuff in the recycler, there's a good chap. It's just... It's flashing, it's flashing, it's flashing, it's flashing, and the community goes. Good evening. 
we return once again to the Hutton Orbital Radio Book Club's presentation of Tabitha Christie's new book, This Other Eden, the casebook of Miss Marbles and the story of the missing mugs, or purloined pottery. Persuaded to come out from behind her sofa and her pseudonym, Flossie has agreed to read another extract from her book. Flossie tells us that these readings have been kept short, partly because of the average attention span of a trucker, but mostly because she gets paid per episode. We recommend that you are seated as comfortably as possible when listening to this tale, because thereby hangs a tale. That's a tale such as an animal might have, not tale as a a story, though I I did mean story when I first said tale, okay? Look, Look, let's ignore that. Moving on. The story so far. Miss Marbles, a lady of vintage years, was invited to be a judge at Hutton Orbital's annual fate. When fate, the other fate, not the annual fate, the one that's worse than death, oh, stop it, you know what I mean, intervened and... A voice cried out, they've gone, they've all gone, the mugs! In the stunned silence that followed, I, Miss Marbles, wondered about three things. Who had taken the mugs? What did they want with them? And who had played that music? Never want to put myself forward, I stood outside the trophy room and peered through the forest of bodies that were crisscrossing the room. I couldn't work out how those at the back could see. Then I realised that they were using some kind of periscope. Ah, they do it with mirrors, I thought. What I could see, but only intermittently, was a large crate marked Hutton Mugs, traditional handle orientation, with the lid hanging open but no obvious signs of damage. Could this be an inside job? Surely no one who lived and worked at Hutton would be seduced by the promise of easy credits by selling mugs on the black market. A Hutton mug that can be bought is a useless mug, but people still fall for them, probably whilst injecting drain cleaner or some such. Whilst I stood there puzzling, from around the corner came a sound with which I which. I recognised that of a mop being waltzed down a corridor. Hurrying after the source of the sound, I saw a figure dressed all in white, holding in his hand a shaft that in other circumstances might have been mistaken for a quarterstaff, so mighty was it. I tried, but I couldn't make him stop. However, he did mop around me in a circle. You know something, don't you? I inquired. As he rotated past, he looked up briefly and stared into my eyes, but his face was completely deadpan. I couldn't read anything in his gaze. You knew this was going to happen. That's why you gave me that invitation, didn't you? Still nothing. This was getting silly, and I was getting dizzy. Who's responsible? Where should I start looking? Again, he said nothing, but paused his gyration for a second, and from under his skin-tight white spandex outfit, he produced what smelled like a cup of coffee. I really don't want to think about where he was keeping it before, especially as it was still warm. I took the cup, and indeed it did contain coffee, with foamy milk on the top, and what at first looked like a little chocolate, but a quick sniff showed that it was some kind of cereal. When I glanced up from the surface of the drink, I found myself alone in the corridor, 
aside from my milky beverage. What could this mean? Where was he trying to point me? What was the, the moving finger indicating? Was it the work of the infamous Macchiato brothers, right-hand men to the infamous Donna Cinacci? Could he be referring to the half-double decaffeinated half-calf with a twist of lemon revolutionary faction that can be found hiding in LS340? Eventually, the penny dropped. Oh, that's better. I wondered what was chafing. Where was I? Oh, yes, my razor-sharp mind had left straight to the answer. The coffee was obviously meant to be cappuccino, and as everyone knows, the drink was named after the robes worn by capuchin monks. Where is the most notorious band of monks in the galaxy to be found? Yes, dear reader, Van Man and Star, home of the mad monks themselves. I was reminded of someone who used to live near me in the convent of St. Mary's in Mead's installation. Eddie just called me Sister Josephine Gridler, who was asked to leave the convent after several unsavoury and unsettling events which resulted in the intervention of the convent's authorities, such as dealing onion head during matins, being the only base in the choir, toilet seats being left up for no good reason, and a stash of money found in a secret hole in the wall behind a poster of a tennis player scratching her behind. But the worst of the 13 problems was when he foolishly decided that what was absolutely essential during a trip to the house of the local vicar was a collection of crows. That was his downfall. Yes, the murder of the vicarage was Eddie's nemesis. I realised with a jolt that the reason that I had not heard Eddie's name shouted from the Gannet News outlets for a very long time was not that he'd turned over a new leaf and gone straight, but that Gannet News was silent on all topics. Very convenient for Eddie, I thought. To follow this clue, I realised that it was time to pack up my knitting and take a trip on the bus to Van Maan and Star. As I relaxed in the economy class cabin, I heard the captain, the pilot, say, we're taking an economical route today. First stop, Jackson's Lighthouse. Jackson's Lighthouse. Jackson's Lighthouse. What lies in store for Miss Marbles at Jackson's Lighthouse? Who really is Eddie Gridler, apart from a thinly disguised trucker? Are the monks mad enough to steal mugs right from under Alvin's sensitive but wet nose? Find out in the next extract when Miss Marbles has the jump of her life and finds out what's worn under a monk's robe. Flossie told you what to do. Tonight, we bring you the latest riveting information from Golnet, our new weekly feature, the Golnet Food Digest. We try everything, so you don't have to. I'm Amelia Hawke, and tonight we're going to be looking at one of the galaxy's rarest and most dangerous cooking ingredients, the Ochoang chili. 
Normally sold to the public in tiny quantities as Ochuang chili paste, there are many imitators and pretenders to its crown, but the original and best must be plucked straight from the plant. Due to the hazardous nature of these chilies, measuring a Google on the Scoville scale, yes, that has more zeros in it than the chat channel on a PvP combat broadcast, it is only licensed to be grown in one location of the galaxy, the station of Roddenberry, Gateway in Ochuan. The plants themselves and their seeds are illegal to export in order to prevent their use as weapons of ass destruction. My apologies, I lost a number there. But first, a salutary tale from one of the seasonal student pepper pickers here at Roddenberry. I visited him in the infirmary. It appears that this student had been hired as labor to harvest the chilies grown in special hydroponics labs in the outer rings of the Orbis. His briefing involved being given a set of welding gloves, some plastic goggles, a face mask, a set of shears, a truck, yes, that's a little basket with a handle, and being told to ensure that he didn't eat any of the chilies that he had picked. The Ochuang chili we have here is as red as a racing mamba and has a rigid surface reminiscent of the kind of planet that the buckyball racers like racing on. There's a slight haze around it, as if the atoms in the air are trying to stay as far away from it as possible. The plant doesn't suffer from pests too badly, though the red fly in its native habitat are particularly vicious and can leave you with a nasty rash. The student, as all of them do, set about the task enthusiastically at first, but after the first 20 or 30 harvested, became a little lackadaisical with things, possibly due to the dehydrating nature of the work. He'd been swinging, swigging away at his water bottle, sufficient to leave him in need of a visit to the nearest facilities. Ignoring the advice to enter the decontamination chamber before performing any ablutions, the student proceeded to enter the cubicle and as one does, prepare one's equipment for drainage in gloves, which had been picking the chilies. Station security stated that the scream could be heard right around the ring and medics rushed to the location just in time to see the screaming student break out in a purple sweat, which duly ran into his eyes. One particularly nasty effect of the Ochuang chilies in their raw state is that most of the fluids in one's body do their best imitation of lava. It was at this point that parts of him started to swell. Not all at the same time, and in some kind of pulsing sequence that left him looking like a balloon animal made by a drunken clown who had never seen a dashend before, the medics broke open industrial Savlon dispensers, coating the student in soothing salve and rolled him in the direction of the infirmary. It is said that he will be making a recovery in a month or two, once the humorous swelling and profuse sweating has gone down. But let this be a lesson to you. Always wash your hands. As for the flavour of these chilies, they're guaranteed to make even the most revolting kitchen concoction edible, mostly by burning the top layer of skin off your tongue. Next week on the Golnet Food Digest, we meet the beast behind the Mukajin Beast Feast and ask, is every part of the Mukajin Beast safe for you to eat? And also, even if it is safe, is it sensible? 
This is Amelia Hawke, very carefully removing her gloves. Tune in next week. Spokesman for Lacon Spaceways. Back again for this week's Hutton Top Trucker. How do we keep up with your shenanigans while you tootle around in the Milky Way? Why, we install this little piece of software called the Hutton Helper in your spaceship. If you ain't already got it installed, you can install it yourself. Relatively pain-free by going to the website hot.forthemug.com. Almost as pain-free as being impersonated by Sean Pond. <laughs> Sorry, y'all. Anyway, so let's get on to our top truckers this week. Yeehaw! From the Explorers, jumping around like them horny rabbits in a field, Commander Cometborn lit it up again with... Wait a second, is this right? It says he traveled 178,644.55 light years. Uh, that may just be record. I don't know. I could. I tried looking. I couldn't figure it out. Commander Atik 2 had fun with his trigger finger again this week, turning the despicably dirty do-batter Don Antonacci and his band of pathetic pirates into space dust. He racked up over 48 million credits worth of bounties while tearing the engines out of every one of the Don ships. Running missions faster than a summer romance, Commander Rincewin Cymru tallied up 908 mission points this week. Loading up a new trailer attachment to the rear of a Lacon Type 9 and filling it to the brim, Commander Mindwipe hauled around 84,000 tons of cargo around the galaxy yet again. Most of it even reached where it was supposed to go. And driving the Hutton High Speed Rail this week, Commander Rincewin Gumri delivered 1,342 passengers around the galaxy. Our fastest run to Hutton Orbital is held by Commander Brett Riverboat in 1 hour, 22 minutes, and 31 seconds. But the fastest run to Hutton in this month of June is held by Commander Knut, or C-Nut, in 1 hour, 
24 minutes and 18 seconds. If y'all think you got what it takes to beat these scores, then download the Hutton Helper and get to flying. You want to hear your name on this here radio station? Make sure you got the Hutton Helper installed. Pick it up on the web at hot.forthemug.com and get to trucking. And don't forget, if you do hear your name called out and you ain't already got one, get in touch with us to get your very own Hutton decal for your ship. Hutton Top Trucker, brought to you by Lacon Spaceways, the only ships in the galaxy with a big red button that says, Don't push me. Seriously. Don't push it. We will catch you next week. Take care and everyone, as always, as it always has been, and fingers crossed for the foreseeable future, it will always be for the mug. Good night, everyone. Catch you next week. For the mug! For the mug! mug.